it's just so nice to be here. And the Sunday afternoons and the Monday nights, you know, there are so many people with such deep, deep practice. And this community gets so many amazing teachers. I mean, it always kind of shocks me when I'm doing it. What I like to do when I'm in a group of practitioners at the level of this one is talk about where the cutting edge and the problems in my own practice have been this year. Okay? And today I'd like to do that around right speech which is very hard for me. (laughs) Um, Before that, for those who don't know me and don't know the project, um, you you can find out more about the project on Sunday and you don't have to do the fundraiser part. You can just come and find out about the project if you want to know more in detail. But we've been working since 2000. We're nine people. At this point... Our work has three basic aspects, okay? There's chaplaincy, okay? We're present with the dying. We chant for the dead. We do healing touch and Reiki. We listen. That's the core, because when we started, that was all that we did. We didn't even do Reiki in those days. But we were designed as people who would come to those who didn't have the money for the monks to come. Okay? Um, So we were the free alternative to the monks. And then as antiretroviral medicines, if if some of this is too complicated for people who aren't familiar with AIDS, um, began to come into Cambodia, we started doing a lot of social work because we traditionally have not done food, money, and medicine. So we spent a lot of time hooking people up to organizations that could do that. We work, we coordinate with organizations who can do that. And we look for the interstices, you know, where somebody's taken care of, but nobody's figured out how to get their kid in school yet. Things like that. Okay. So starting in about 2002, 2003, when a lot of people started making a very difficult turn. I mean, before then, everybody died. You got AIDS, you died. That wasn't true any longer in the States, but it was true in Cambodia. And then antiretrovirals came in at the rate of 10 patients a month in a country with 180,000 HIV-positive people and 25,000 active AIDS cases. And at that point, the death rate was between 15 and 25,000 a year because we're talking about a badly malnourished population scarred by war. And, you know, you get AIDS on top of that, and it's kind of different. So the antiretrovirals came in, And we started to do much more social work along with our traditional things. 
And then in the past year, largely because a community of 2,000 people was moved 22 kilometers outside the city because what had been slum became uh, desirable land next to the river. And they couldn't get in to get their medicines. Okay, they can get free medicines, they can get free medical care, but it costs more than the month's food budget to get into town. So about April of last year, we started going in out there once a week to find the AIDS patients to give them the money to go in and get the meds. All right. So we do that. And that's gotten bigger. And that's expanded to include people who come from the provinces who might not otherwise be able to come with enough regularity. So our material aid part, again, is in the interstices of care. Yeah. Where are the larger organizations not reaching? You know, how can we facilitate, I hate that word, <laughs> how can we get people help on a scale that we can manage without turning into a relief organization or getting too big or losing our actual center of purpose? Yeah. I don't want to go out to the relocation site so that I can chant for people who would die, who, who are only dying because I don't give them five dollars to go into town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not okay. So, those are the three aspects of what we do now. And the third aspect has gotten a lot larger because the organizations that are providing the medicines, you know, are not always able to provide food or transportation. We can't do food. We're not big enough. We can sometimes do emergency food. But we've taken on transportation a bit. So that's kind of the three aspects of it. But the, the fundamental thing is chaplaincy. How do we help people understand that the Buddha's compassion is already there? It's right there. It's right in the middle of the suffering. How do we get help people get that so that whether they live or they die, they do that with a more peaceful heart? So everything that we do is designed around that question. So that's kind of, that's the history of the project part of this talk. <laughs> we are eight people. All right. Um, Right speech, explained in negative terms, means avoiding four types of harmful speech. Lies, words spoken with the intent of misrepresenting the truth. Divisive speech, spoken with the intent of creating rifts between people. Harsh speech, 
spoken with the intent of hurting another person's feelings, and idle chatter spoken with no purposeful intent at all. Okay. In positive terms, right speech means speaking in ways that are trustworthy, harmonious, comforting, and worth taking to heart. And this, of course, is Tanja. <laughs> One of the people you're lucky enough to have come here often. <laughs> That's traditional right speech. Um, when I was looking for things today, I also ran across a, a lovely definition. Right speech is saying things in a way that allows the other person to move forward compassionately. All right. Right speech is really hard for me. <laughs> because I think at its core is non-reactivity. Right. So I want to talk about a couple of times this year that I've actually managed to do it and how hard that was. <laughs> All right. And for those of you who get my monthly letters, you're going to hear a somewhat less censored version of stories you've seen already. All right. We had to fire someone. We had to fire her because she had not only lost her heart for the work, but she had become utterly shameless in her disrespect for the patients. Now, for an organization that only has respect and love to offer patients, this is not a small failing. <laughs> it was a very gradual process over a long period. At one point, she had been excellent. Right? But over two and a half or three years, her commitment deteriorated. And people didn't want to tell me. Because in Cambodia, you don't do that. All right? And I had heard little bits and pieces about it. And I had seen some of the behavior directly. But they didn't want her to be fired. They didn't want her to retaliate against them if she were fired. They didn't want to be to blame. <laughs> All right. So it finally reached a point where I had to be told. And it included things like buying food for herself and eating it in front of the patients, um, going into a hospice and instead of taking care of the patients, finding an empty bed and going to sleep, um, I was pretty scandalized. <laughs> so, <laughs> and how was I going to deal with this 
in a way that was going to be helpful. So the first thing I did was I talked to my unofficial supervisor, who is the head of Marinol over there. All right. And he said, you got to fire her. Uh, Jim has been my unofficial supervisor since before I started this project. And he has been head of all of Mary Knoll, and he's the founder of Mary Knoll's AIDS program, which is tremendously successful over there and helps 2,500 people at this point. And he said, you could give her the option of resigning. And I said, well, can I wait till I get back from the States because it's going to leave us shorthanded. He said, no, because you don't know what she's going to, if this is what she's doing while you're there, what is she going to do when you're not there? Okay. How? And I had heard the one story about the sleeping from five different people all of whom did not want it accredited to them, <laughs> but it was something that took... She had reached a point where she was willing to do that, not only in front of her Khmer staff, fellow staff members, but in front of a foreign visitor. How did I let it get that far? Where was I when I should have been paying attention? Part of the answer to that question is that the shift from my being primarily involved with the patients to my being primarily involved in administration is a very difficult and reluctant one for me. You know, this isn't what I signed on for. All right. But when I have been primarily involved in the patients, there hasn't been time or energy to see these things. I'll say that not an exoneration, but an explanation of how come I was so clueless for so long. All right. I took her for granted. When she had been good, she had been very, very good. Okay, so I was going to have to fire her. How was I going to fire her in a way that wasn't going to come back on anybody? Well, I timed it so that the person she works most closely with was in retreat when I did it. And I did not tell any of the staff members that it was going to happen. So that if she asked them afterwards... You know, they had no, they were not implicated in it. They were not involved in it. So that was the first thing I did around protection. Then I got a friend of mine who is a social worker and counselor and who has absolutely grammatically correct fluence Khmer, unlike my Khmer, to act as translator. Someone from outside, someone highly skilled, and then I gave her the option of resigning 
and getting two months compensation and letters of recommendation where appropriate or getting fired and getting no letters and one month's compensation. And she was very, very, very unhappy and she cried a lot and we sat there with her while she did that. And we did not rush her. And I made her sign a paper. This was also Jim's suggestion that, you know, she was resigning and that the the organization had fulfilled all its commitments to her so that nothing could come back in that direction. Now, I don't think this stuff is all that different from what a lot of people here have had to do. <laughs> um, what was useful for me and very hard was the business of processing it step by step very carefully so as to do the least possible harm and then I was terrified I was terrified that the rest of my staff were going to feel their jobs were threatened so the day after I did it which happened to be our Wednesday teaching day um I took careful time to explain that this is about commitment to the patients. That we have a lot of flexibility in our organization. You know, we cut a lot of slack in a lot of ways. All of us burn out from time to time. A friend of mine says, if you're not burning out, you're not doing the work. Um, that this isn't, you know, but that... You know, extended disrespect is just not something we can have. And the net result of it, oddly enough, has been, or not oddly enough, I mean, a friend of mine told me this is obvious. (laughs) The rest of the staff is free to work harder with more open hearts. And they've been doing that. It's been wonderful to see that. Yeah. It's been wonderful to see that the bonding in the staff is stronger. In the middle of all this, we took on a person with an eye towards their being able to do administrative work next year. Someone with a lot of experience in non-governmental organizations with fluent English, who can write reports in English and do all of those things. And I made the mistake of thinking that she was going to learn how to take care of the patients in the space of three months. Well, you don't learn how to take care of our patients in the space of three months. Most of my staff did, but most of my staff came in with AIDS, with partners and children who died of AIDS, as people who'd been caregivers in AIDS hospices for years. I mean, they're coming in with all that, and we're picking them because of the quality of their work. 
So if they learn Reiki and healing touch and then within three months they're completely at home, then okay, yeah. But she's coming in as a highly educated person who's been to peace education conferences in Geneva and New York, who used to head up the Nuns and Lay Women's Association. And she's coming in because she comes from a much higher social class with the idea that what she does is automatically going to be better than what they do. And within two months, we had a problem. (laughs) Okay, so when I did her three-month review, I had to do two things. I had to tell her that she was not going to start taking major administrative responsibility next year which meant that she was not going to get the salary increase that came with that. Now, she's used to working for much higher salaries than we have and was willing to work for basically half her standard salary, but I can't give her that unless I can give her administration because that's more than my experienced staff makes, and they're better than she is. So what I said was that I was going to have to cut her back to what I wanted her simply to focus on her meditation training and bringing that meditative mind to the patients in her Reiki. And she has done that. She's done that beautifully. She's also done a wonderful turnaround. Um, Because at one point in this conversation, she says something to me, but I'm good at this and you know I said but yeah but you've been doing it for three months if you do it for five years you're going to be a lot better at it yeah (laughs) everybody else has been and she got it so that she is now one of the group she respects the other staff members They respect and like her, and she's able really to contribute to the way in which things are done. So I got very strong reinforcement for the work I put in, in doing those two things. And that was good. The deeper problem with right speech that faces me on this trip, (laughs) how do I talk about my need to prepare the organization for my leaving it? That the direction my own Dhamma practice in retreat is taking me is not into spending my time administering this project. If I'm going to be working with the dying, and that's something I may well want to continue, I want to be working directly with them in extended situations where I can continue to learn. If I'm going to be able to spend more retreat time and really settle in and study the Dhamma in those ways, then, you know, 
how do I square that with the fact that my staff is now really good? They're going to be better than me. They're going to be better than me because a lot of them are more gifted with things like Reiki than I am. I'm I'm good at it. I'm not saying I'm not good at it. But I have people who are enormously talented at it, whose intuitive sense of what's going on in a patient when they do Reiki, you know, is so much stronger than mine. And I'm watching that blossom. And they're Khmer. They're working from inside their own culture. So they understand a lot about what's going on in people's social and psychological dynamics much better than I do. How do I allow them to develop and continue and become teachers in their turn? So as my own practice is moving in one direction, the need for responsibility in the other direction is equally strong. And the problem for right speech is how do I talk about that in a way that doesn't harm anything? So, it feels to me, I've always, I've I've never been nervous about giving Dhamma talks. I have this combination of megalomania and arrogance that normally sees me through anything. But this year I feel very tenuous about it. Because being non-reactive, finding a way to say things that helps open up the situation. And to do that carefully is a skill that I'm just trying to learn. And that makes this talk different from most of my talks when I come in and I tell you all kinds of dramatic stories about our patients and about all these other things. And you'll get those on Sunday if you'd like them. And we have plenty of them. (laughs) All right. But selfishly, because I'm in a crowd of people with very deep practice, you know, what I want to do is lay open where the cutting edge, where the edge of my own problems in practice are right now. Yeah. How do I, you know, until a year and a half ago, my practice and the development of the project were completely linked for me. You know, Gil used to say, but Cambodia is your monastery. Well, he doesn't say that anymore to me. (laughs) There's a change going on. And Jim says to me, if it's a choice between your own spiritual growth and the project, you have to choose your own spiritual growth. 
And the Buddha says to us to put nothing ahead of your own highest good. So how can I negotiate these troubled waters? How can I find a path? Because we do very good work now. I am, I'm, you know, we do really good work and we do useful work. And we do work that nobody else does. <laughs> but it's my staff who's getting all the fun now. You know, I sit with them. I do the Dhamma talks. We're studying the Dhammapada like everybody else in this community. <laughs> Yeah, and then they go out, and except for the really complicated cases and the financially complicated cases, they get all the fun stuff. They go to the hospital. They sit there with the people. They get to know them with very intimate hearts. And I (laughs) get to write up reports. on to be an administrator. Yeah. So that's kind of where it is. And I'm looking at speech because I couldn't for the life of me figure out what I was going to say. Last Thursday at the Dhamma Talk Guild suggested that I talk about breath. But you guys know that. You guys know that the thing that stands between us and burnout is our breath. Everyone in this room knows that, or at least 90% of you. Everyone, most people, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe there are practitioners in this room without that much experience. But most people in this room know perfectly well that it's our breath that frees us. So I don't need to come in here on a Monday night and talk about that. I can come in here and tell you how hard it is for me to try and learn right speech. (laughs) And that's what I'm doing. So thank you, and there's time for questions. Oh, sorry, there's one other thing. Um, Hi, David. Hi, Terry. (laughs) Hi, Linda. I've got three friends that I haven't seen in, one I've I've never actually met face to face, um, who always listen to these talks. (laughs) Okay, questions. Was that at all coherent? Okay. Uh, I mean, what I'm trying to do is present you with a muddle in as clear a way as I can. Yes. Uh, would you wait for the mic, please? The the woman that you had to fire, mm-hmm. did you end up feeling or thinking that you accomplished right speech in doing that, the way you did it? Eighty percent. Eighty percent. The other twenty percent is that she was having liver trouble I didn't know about that was a contributing factor. It was not decisive, but at the very beginning, I should have given her more space 
for that to come out. I would not, it would not have changed outcome, but it would have changed the tenor of how things went. Um, I did feel, however, that when I had to tell the second person that she wasn't going to be an administrator, that all of that work on the firing was helping every minute of it. Yeah. Because it was easier to see, you know, what I did was an old Tibetan Lojong thing. They say drive all blames into yourself. And I said to her, I am really sorry because this problem is my fault. I did not pay enough attention to how long it takes to learn to work with the patients. So now we need to start and redo it. But I wouldn't have been able to do that without the first struggle. Or I, it would have, I might have gotten there, but it would have taken a whole lot longer. You know, and after I was finished telling her she wasn't going to be an administrator and that, you know, all of these things that are inherently not so okay to tell her, she said, but you didn't say anything I did wrong. <laughs> and the combination of that and her changing, we probably won't keep her past December because by January she's going to need to make more salary than we can do. But she wants to stay as long as she can because she's happy. So it didn't pay off. The work paid off immediately. The examination of the work afterwards helped pay off in the next case. And I'm sure there will be plenty more cases. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Okay. Wait here. I, I my life experience is very much like yours, and one of the most difficult things is it's going right. I, I can hear you. One of the most difficult things is that shift between being an administrator mm -hmm. and being in the trenches. Mm -hmm. And you seem to be doing that now. I am kicking and screaming. It's very hard. Oh, yeah. I finally, after all those years of struggling, got to a point where I knew I could walk into those rooms and be present. Yeah. And it's like as soon as I, I, I get that sense of, and that realistically grounded sense, not, you know, not the early arrogance and egotism and megalomania and all the rest of it. But, you know, knowing that that switch is going to turn on and that energy that doesn't belong to me personally is going to get activated. I reach that point and then it all gets taken away from me. <laughs> yeah, how did you manage it? come from the ego, but it's got to not come from the ego in a different way. 
Yeah. Um, because if I do it from the ego, I'm horribly reactive, and I would have beaten up that woman <laughs> for being mean to the patients. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd much rather be working directly. Can I add a tiny bit that's very, very personal? After I left here last year and I was in New York about a week and a half before I was supposed to go home, my older sister, who's been sick for a very long time, collapsed completely and was in neurological intensive care for several weeks before she died. And I got to be with her. And I'm sure that part of her timing was so that I would be with her. She was always a much better sister to me than I ever was to her. But she wanted me there. (laughs) Okay. And even though she only had brainstem function, all right, the intimacy of the work that I could do with her, the intimacy of what I could do to help her husband and her children and her grandchildren, was so powerful for me. And I feel so privileged to have been able to do that. And I came back and I did months of acting out. And one of the ways I acted out is I took the hardest cases, like we had a woman with a cancer this big. And I was there every day with her. That was really exhausting. Okay. But I felt the connection, you know. (laughs) There are people who like to write reports. (laughs) I spent years and years and years doing human rights work in the West Bank and Gaza, being in the office translating the information that people had into international standard English and never getting out into the field until I'd been there for more than five years. All right? And this is like the reverse. It's like I started in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to... I mean, this is on right speech and all I'm doing is complaining. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, this may be a question that's several more talks, so do with it what you wish. I'm wondering, you said, you know, nothing comes before our spiritual practice. And it sounds to me like you're practicing quite rigorously. So my question is, how do we discern where our Yes, our practice is. And, you know, those places where we're uncomfortable, not liking the reports. And I'm also a caregiver. So Mm -hmm. I know um, both that space where the ego goes away Mm -hmm. and then the space where the ego comes back and it likes the the intimacy and the attachment and the Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, it's a it's a question about where where is the practice really? 
Well, I can give you the standard answer, which I truly believe. The practice is exactly where you are at every moment. Um, I don't know that there's another answer. That the discernment... I mean, six months ago, I was much more frustrated with the situation, if you can believe it, than I am now. (laughs) It's like I'm becoming at home with this problem of how do I do this. Um, And I'm not looking for quick fixes the way I was for a while. But... I don't think it's a topic of more Dhamma talks. I think it's a topic of a lifetime. You know, I mean, I think what you've done is ask the fundamental question. You know, what does it mean to be present? And that's present for the reports and present for the patients. When the Buddha says not to let anything get in the way of our own deepest good, That's carefully phrased. It's not, don't let anything get in the way of our practice. Because we get in the way of our practice all the time. At least I do. (laughs) But if there is a conflict between our own highest good and we see that conflict, and we're working on discernment, You know, I was shocked when Jim said, if you have to go ahead and close the project, your people have gotten enormous amounts out of it. Nothing lives forever. Well, I don't want to do that. All right. I'm not ready to do it that way. Give me another year, two years of trying to find a way for them to take it over. And if it doesn't happen, then maybe I'll be ready to. But I want You know, and it's I. (laughs) I want them to take over. I want them to become teachers in their turn. I want the quality of their work to spread further and further in a country that desperately needs what they do. In a world that desperately needs what they do. Thank you. Okay, now it's 9.01, so nobody should feel trapped. (laughs) I am delighted to continue as long as people are comfortable, but those of you who have babysitters or need to do things, should we ring a bell and then? Yeah, okay.